0: Hi, my name is John Whitaker, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. Our goal, our heart here on the Bible in Life is to provide Bible teaching that is what I call blue jeans theology. It's down to earth. It's rooted in everyday life. It's in the language of everyday life so that we can understand it, not just for the goal of understanding it, so that we can understand it and follow Jesus more fully and more completely right in the context of our everyday life. So thanks for being here. And if you're new and that sounds like something would be helpful to you, man, I would encourage you to just uh, subscribe right there on your podcast player so you never miss an episode. Also, from time to time, I like to highlight... new ministry partners here at the beginning of the show. So I want to say a special thank you to Gerald and Joanne for their generous support of the Bible and Life and the listener's commentary. This whole ministry is made possible by a team of generous donors, and Gerald and Joanne joined that team. And I just want to say thank you. And if you've been blessed in some way by this podcast and this ministry and you want to join that team, there is a link down in the notes below where you can support the show there. One of the unique things about a podcast like this, the listeners' commentary. One of the unique things is that I sit in a room, I talk to a microphone, and oftentimes I don't get to build a relationship with the people who are listening. And for me, Bible teaching is so incredibly relational. I don't feel like I just teach the Bible; I teach people the Bible, and so this is uniquely challenging in some regards because I don't always get to see your face and. I only hear bits and pieces of feedback from me, and I love it when I do because it helps me know who's listening, what they're benefiting from, maybe the questions they have. And that's just incredibly helpful to me because of that relational component. And here's why I bring that up in this specific instance. One of the recent podcasts in this current series on some of the questions about the Bible, where I talked about inspiration of the Bible. Well, that generated a a series of questions that one listener had. And so he reached out to me, sent me a message, and asked me just a handful of questions that I I really think, man, are worth digging into and jumping into. Those questions are this, if the Bible is inspired or supervised by God, that's the way I described it on podcast here in the last week or so, if the Bible is inspired and supervised by by God, then does God still do that? Why is Scripture complete, or why are other works, both ancient and modern texts, not considered inspired Scripture? What if they don't contradict Scripture? And if God supervised Scripture, does that have to mean that He has that, that Scripture has no prescriptive errors in it that aren't necessarily sinful? But they're cultural. Would God just have compelled the authors and a supervision to edit those things out? Those are all great questions really about the nature of the text of Scripture and specifically about at least at the heart of these questions has to do with the idea of the canon of Scripture. And so what I want to do in this episode is I want to try to address these questions And uh, get us to think through specifically the canon of Scripture, because I do think there's a lot of questions about that. Canon is is to be has to do with which books are in and which books are out. Why these books? Why not other books? And all that. You could hear some of that underlying these questions. And so the canon of Scripture: How do we know we have the right books in the Bible? And how were those books chosen to be in the Bible? And all of that. Canon of Scripture. And then maybe wrestle with a few more details that uh, grow out of these particular questions. All right, so that's, let's look at that. This first question is, if the Bible is inspired or supervised by God, then does he still do that? Why is Scripture complete? And that really directly addresses this question of canonicity, the canon of Scripture. The Old Testament books, the New Testament books, why these books and why not others? Why is Scripture Complete. And the brief answer is this. Both Jews concerning the Hebrew scriptures and Christians concerning the New Testament scriptures recognized certain writings as possessing authority that other writings did not. That's really the key issue. The key issue is Authority. Which books have authority and which do not? It's not that all other books are bad or wrong. In fact, even to the early Christians, as they were saying, here's our books, recognized other books that were profitable for personal reading or devotional reading, but they didn't have the same authority as what they considered to be the writings of the apostles or those closely connected with the apostles. That's the key issue. So, why is scripture considered complete? Well, it was considered com- complete by the Jews before the time of Christ because of this issue of authority, and it was considered complete early after the time of Christ by the, the early Christians because of the same reason, authority, which books are authoritative and which are not. And that's the main issue. For the Old Testament, there was a consistent and persistent awareness among the Old Testament Israelites of divinely authoritative writings from the time of Moses you can see it even in like the giving of the Old Testament law these books became authoritative and they became really their rule of faith and practice, so that, for example, as you're reading the Old Testament story through the Kings or the Chronicles, they'll occasionally mention, oh, they found the book of the law, they instituted therefore reforms, they got rid of the idols, right? And they went back to following what the law said. And so these books were viewed as having a authority from the time of Moses. And that naturally led them to honor and protect these writings. Uh, This awareness then of their authority logically motivated the Jews after the exile and the return from captivity back to their land. It motivated those Jews to confirm, here's our books. Here's the authoritative books that we recognize uh, that God has given to us. Um, And Part of what motivated them, that was they also recognized that God was no longer speaking through prophets the way He was prior to uh, the time period of the exile. And, and in fact, in the time period of the Maccabean revolt between the old New Testaments, that four hundred years between the end of the old and beginning of the new during the Maccabean revolt, they actually um, they actually kind of recollected and reorganized and refined the structure of their recognized authoritative books that shows up in the very same structure that we see in the Hebrew scriptures today. The structure that we see actually reflected in the New Testament when they reference the the law, the prophets, the writings, or all of that. It's the same structure that we see evidenced in the prologue to another intertestamental Jewish work, the book of Ecclesiasticus, also known as the Wisdom of Ben Sirach. We, We see in the prologue to that... Here's our books, and here is the structure, um, what has become known as the Tanakh. The Tanakh stands for Torah, T, that's the law. Uh, the In, uh, Neveim is the prophets, and then K. Ketbin, the writings, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the Hebrew scriptures. And that structure was largely in place before the time of Jesus. And it grew out of a recognition of, here are our authoritative books. In fact, even during the intertestamental time period, that time between the Old and New Testament, they seem to recognize like God is no longer speaking through prophets like he was before. You'll see this, for example, 1 Maccabees 9, verse 27, that there was turmoil for Israel, catch this, such as not had been been since the prophets ceased to appear among them. And so the author of 1 Maccabees is acknowledging, one, that he's not of the same quality. He's not a prophetic writer, and it's not a prophetic book, and that the prophets have ceased to appear among Israel. Um, in fact, First Maccabees 14 says that Simon, one of the uh, Maccabean leaders was made leader until a trustworthy prophet should appear because they're no longer appearing. Uh, another intertestamental writing, Second Baruch, says the prophets have fallen asleep. They've ceased, right? Like, um, even Josephus, who wrote during the time period of the Apostle Paul and the Jewish uh, War, says that from the time or after the time of Artaxerxes, roughly about 450 B.C., The written record, this is Josephus saying this, he's a Jew, the written record was not of the same quality as before that time period. So during the intertestamental period, the the Jewish writings and the Jewish teachers and the Jewish leaders, they operated under the conviction that God was no longer giving authoritative, inspired, prophetic writings. And that's why they had this definitive structure. That's why they had this set number of books. And the same is very much true for the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament, there's so many bad presentations of how this came about. You, you get this idea. It was even said to me, my, my grandpa, when I was in high school, that why should I you know, trust a, a, a book that a group of people got together 300 years after the fact and voted on which books are in and which books are out? That's just a complete falsehood. That's just not the way it happened in history. Um, the... New Testament books, again, are those books that are recognized as possessing divine authority because they came from the apostles or those closely connected with the apostles. In fact, you even see within the New Testament itself reference to apostolic authority, where, the, like the Apostle Paul says, that he, he speaks with the authority of the Spirit of Jesus, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 36 and 37, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13, where he's speaking uh, and preaching and delivering to them the Word of God. You see, in the, even in the New Testament, the, the, new, the Apostles' writings are quickly being collected and circulated. Um, you see in... 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, that a quote from the Gospel of Luke is put on par with a quote from Old Testament scripture. I mean, right from the beginning, the writings of the apostles are being collected and circulated and passed on and recognized as possessing divine authority. And so we need to remember that the books did not become authoritative after they were, you know put into a, an official list, it's the exact opposite. They were put into an official list because they were recognized as authoritative. That was the, the issue all along. And you, you see this in the early church fathers where they, they just, these books were collected and had authority right from the get-go. So, for example, Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome was an early church father writing a letter to the Corinthians in about 95 AD. So right around the same time that, uh, as best as we can tell, the book of Revelation, 1 John, and some of those books were written, um, Clement of Rome actually quotes or alludes to 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Titus, James, John's Gospel, Hebrews, and Matthews. He, He puts the Sermon on the Mount on equal footing with the Old Testament prophets. I mean, This is right at the tail end of the apostolic time period, and he already has a collection of books that he can quote or allude to, and he sees them as having authority. Uh, You see the same thing with um, Ignatius, who was a church leader in Antioch, and, uh, and he's Writing around 110 to 115, again, right after the time of the apostles. And he quotes or alludes to 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He specifically refers to Ephesians. Uh, Polycarp, who was church leader in a city called Smyrna, wrote a letter to the Philippian church right around 110 to 115. Again, right after the time period of the Apostles. In fact, Polycarp was, uh, from what we can tell, taught by the Apostle John. And Polycarp uh, shows familiarity with uh, anywhere from 15 to 20 of the New Testament books. Matthew, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Thessalonians. I mean, He specifically refers to Philippians because he's writing a letter to them. He quotes from Ephesians with the introduction. It is said in these scriptures and then quotes from Ephesians chapter 4. Like Polycarp's short little letter by itself shows us that here is a church leader in not a major city of the New Testament, has a collection that seems to include a good chunk of our entire New Testament that he can quote Or allude to and this is just consistent throughout uh, the early church fathers in fact one scholar actually said if we didn't even have copies of the text of the New Testament in Greek and various languages we could reproduce almost the entire New Testament from quotes of the early church fathers like they were viewed as the authoritative books for the early church and it was their authority that allowed them to be recognized as central and thus eventually listed as here are our official books. And the reason they had to be listed is because uh, you had False books showing up after the fact and attaching an apostle's name to it. And so they were trying to gain authority by uh, sticking an apostle's name on a book written much later at the time period of the apostles. And so eventually they said, no, here are the books that we have always recognized as having divine authority because they came from an apostle or somebody closely connected from an apostle. And so you get these even get lists very early on. For example, the well-known Miratorian Canon or list comes from about 170-180 AD, uh, pretty early on, and it lists off a handful of books um, that includes virtually our entire New Testament. The beginning and the end of the, the document is damaged, and so we don't have it. So it picks up with the Gospel of Luke, but it mentions Luke being the third which would imply that probably Matthew and Mark were before it, right? So the document, um, being old, is damaged, but uh, it includes virtually our entire New Testament. It actually adds two books, The Wisdom of Solomon and The Shepherd of Hermas, but says... These are only for private reading, so it notes they're different. They're not necessarily scripture. They're more like useful devotional books, right, but not necessarily scripture. Uh, the, the church leader, Origin for the New Testament, writing in the early 200s, around 220, 230, he actually has categories. He has, here's the books that there's no question about, um, and that includes 21 of our 27 New Testament books, and he has ones that there's some question about because they weren't universally recognized in all the churches. And so he has a few of those. That's six books. And then he has the books that are like, these ones are false. They're just completely spurious. No one's ever recognized them, right? So the church is recognizing the authority of the books and even willing to say, here's some that there's some question about because they haven't always been universally recognized. So back to our question, why is scripture complete? Well, the reason it was viewed as complete was because, for the case of the New Testament, it came with the divine authority of authorized spokesmen, those commissioned by Jesus himself, the apostles. And when the apostles were done writing, Scripture was viewed as complete. Or when those closely connected with the apostles, such as Luke, were done writing, uh, it was viewed as complete. Those were the authoritative books that we always recognized, and we evaluated all other writings based on those. The same is true with the Old Testament. Why is it complete? Because here were our authorized, inspired books, the ones that actually came with prophetic authority, Um, and they recognized that well before the time of Jesus. And so scripture is complete because uh, there are no more authorized spokesmen. Now. Could there have been other books, right? That's the next question. Why are other works, both ancient and modern, not considered inspired scripture? What if they don't contradict scripture? And you heard it when I mentioned the Miratorian Canon. They recognized other books were useful. You could read them. They could be like devotional books. They just don't come with the same authority as the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament or the apostolic writings of the New Testament. And so that's the reason. They they don't come from authorized spokesmen, Uh, apostles or those closely with them, right? Um, And thus they haven't been recognized as bearing divine authority from the beginning of the church or from the time period of the Jews. And that's the issue, authorized spokesmen. So can other writings be helpful? Can they be informative? Might they have some uh, usefulness for private reading? Sure. Sure. They can be good devotional literature, perhaps. Or they could even instruct us, like read the books of the intertestinal time period to learn about that time period. They can be helpful, but they don't speak with the same authority as authorized Scripture. Now, that, that's questions one and two. Uh, the third question is, if God supervised Scripture, does that have to mean that it has no prescriptive errors that aren't necessarily sinful but cultural would God have compelled the authors to edit those things out? This is a really important question, um, and I'm going to have to answer this real briefly, okay? So it's probably going to stir up more questions, but hopefully it'll give you a framework of thought. We know when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we know that it is rooted in, in culture, like God in his wisdom, whether we understand it always or like it or not doesn't matter. God in his wisdom decided that the way he wanted to reveal his plans and purposes for us and for this world was through a story and that story is rooted in history to real people living in real times and real places and thus having a real culture. And so some of what what gets addressed in both testaments is directly shaped by and influenced by the culture. It's addressing their culture with their cultural questions and their cultural needs, right? So we have to admit that with regard to Scripture. It is affected and influenced by culture. Um, but culture doesn't necessarily mean there are heirs, It just means it's applied to that culture. And so one of the things Bible readers both ancient and modern have always wrestled with. You even see this in the case of Jesus. Jesus is applying Old Testament teachings to the culture of his day, right? The apostles take Old Testament teachings and apply them to the culture of their day. So we see this even within uh, the the Bible itself. We see this where uh, we're trying to take things that were written to one culture and apply it to a new culture. Um, and so, Bible readers, ancient and modern, have wrestled with: What do we do with things that are expressed in terms of their culture here's what we don't do as best as i understand it And here's what what the way i see scripture function what we don't do is we don't just throw it away we don't take you know our black marker and just you know well this is cultural and we just cross it out right we just delete those parts we just don't do that just because it's cultural Uh, we we're still under the authority of these spokesmen. This issue of authority still comes in at this place. They are the authorized spokesmen. We don't elevate ourselves above the text as those in charge of the text and make the text submit to us. We arrange ourselves under the text, and we submit to the text of Scripture. This is what it means to Uh, believe in the authority of scripture. We believe in that. We believe that scripture mediates divine authority as we understand it and as we try to figure out what to do with it in our context. Now, this also means that that sometimes uh, you'll get people who are submitted to the authority of scripture who view how we apply a certain text differently. And thus, we need grace, we need humility, and we need honest, loving conversation to figure that out, because we may not always see it eye to eye. But we still have to arrange ourselves under the authority of Scripture. We don't delete uh, the Scripture just because it's it's cultural bound. So, for example, John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, um, and then he tells them that he gave them an example that they should do likewise. Now, in my particular culture, washing feet is not a customary cultural practice. It's not something we do very commonly. Uh, in their culture, what Jesus did made perfect sense. In fact, the act he did was the act reserved for a very low household servant or slave. Uh, and so that is specifically culture bound. Um, does that mean we just throw that text out, we delete it? No. The direct teaching is wash each other's feet, right? That's a direct application in their culture. Um, and in cultures where it still makes sense to do that and where that still is culturally appropriate, God's people should care for each other in that way. But the principle of that is that we should humbly care for each other by serving each other. If that means washing their feet, great. If that makes sense in the culture we living, great. But there are other ways we can do that in other cultures. So we take the the principle that is applied to their culture, and we apply it wisely uh, and with discernment in whatever culture we find ourselves living in. Say, see the same thing when the apostles say, greet one another with a holy kiss. In my culture, that's not how we greet one another. This right? is not what we do. We, we shake hands, we give hugs, right? Uh, the idea seems to be with for a greet one another with a warm family-like greeting. So when I see my family, I give them a hug. That makes more sense in in our culture than amongst the family of God, than a holy kiss. We're not going to represent, or we're not going to replicate their culture in our culture, but we want to take the principle embodied in that direct application, bring it into our world. So this really is a question of um, hermeneutics, of interpretation and application of scripture. Uh, And so cultural elements do show up in the text. God in his wisdom thought that was the best way to uh, express himself and reveal his purposes to us. And thus, it requires some discernment and humility on our part to try to sort some of that stuff out. And there are some where it's a little more difficult and challenging than the two examples I just gave. For example, uh, one where people in certain cultures have been you know, bothered by and wrestled with is uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. Again, we don't take our black sharpie and we just delete that from the text. We're going to wrestle with what what does that mean? How does that play out then in our culture? And at the end of that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 33, right? he says, Husbands, make sure you res- or wives make sure you respect your husbands, and husbands see to it that you love your wives. That's sort of the general summary statement. It helps us understand what he's getting at. And so, however we understand the interplay of uh, submission, it's going to show up in honor and respect, right? And so we're going to figure out what that looks like. And so, um, God did not compel them to delete or to edit out cultural things. Cultural things show up in the text. What we need to do is figure out, uh, in our culture, how do we apply that? If it makes sense to do exactly what it says in our culture, great, do it. If not, then we submit ourselves to the the principle embodied in that direct teaching, and we apply that principle to our context, to our world. Well, man... There's so much more that could be said about that last question, about all of this. I've just hit a few highlights, hopefully to give you some understanding for how this all plays out. Um, Here is, if I could just offer, and it comes out of this last question, really this whole thing. Here is my whole heart in this, that as we wrestle with scripture, we want to wrestle with it as people who are under the authority of God. And if we're going to honor what Scripture claims to be and what God's people have always said Scripture is, then we believe Scripture mediates God's authority to us. And thus we need to wrestle with how that happens and we need to submit ourselves to it. And so we seek to understand Scripture as those submitted to the very authority of God mediated to us through Scripture. Scripture speaks God's word to us and it comes to us with God's authority. And thus, we listen to it closely and humbly to try to understand what God is saying to us so we can live it out in our context. Well, I hope that helps at least a little bit. Uh, and I, I hope more than anything else that we will be people of the text rooted in the word of God, arranged under the word of God so that we can uh, he, hear and heed the word of God to bring glory to God in our context. That's what it's really ultimately all about. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible in Life podcast. May God bless you and lead you by his word and by his spirit. I look forward to talking to you again next week.